0: Winter was here, but we're just getting started here on our Game of Thrones rewatch for season two, episode two here on Post Show Recaps. And now here are the two guys who are coming in with some Purell and I'm going to disinfect the whole Westeros map after this. I'm Rob Sister here with Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you?
1: Watch where you step is all I'm going to say as we wade into this episode of Game of Thrones. Yuck! disgusting wow yeah <laughs> filthy filthy episode of game of thrones game of thrones in the early days especially for those who are just now following along there's a lot of like uh sexploitation was the was the buzzword that circled around game of thrones i think the exploitation or, or sex position sex position as well i think sex position <laughs> No, that is as well. position with an s oh my god i think uh the nightlands uh i believe is the is this is this is the episode where you can really see that coming into focus uh so to speak this is a this is a there's a there's a lot there's a lot going on here a lot of a lot of dirty minds at work mm-hmm. yeah a lot of yeah
0: well i feel like it was around this time in the show's run that there was like the s n l digital short of that Andy sandberg had done about how making it out to be that you know uh, George R. R. Martin sort of was like a 13 year old boy who was just like obsessed with uh, talking about all sorts of like locker room type stuff. And right. uh, that's why a lot of this is in the show.
1: Yeah, no, I think so. Well, I mean, I don't know that that's, yeah, <laughs> I don't think that that's like the actual answer uh, for why it's in the show. But it was definitely a talking point around this time and in the mildest of spoilers for where we go moving forward in Game of Thrones. Not that this kind of thing ever really goes away, but it becomes less of a focus for sure. hmm.
0: Yeah. So they, they, you know, walk away from this a little bit. All right. So anyway, we got uh, like
1: 17 different sex scenes in this episode. I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know where we're, where we are anymore. It's just a lot going on here. A lot going on here. All right. So,
0: uh, here we are. Uh, we're 20% of the way through season two after this.
1: Yes, yes, we are, uh, we are. We're slowly but surely moving forward through season two here talking about the Nightlands, uh, the aptly named episode of Game of Thrones season two, episode two, considering there's literally one scene in the Red Waste where they bring up the Nightlands. That's it.
0: Yeah, this was uh, the biggest reach. Uh, and I'm not talking about the place in Westeros of the uh, names of episodes so far.
1: Yeah, I think that there's, you know, the the North Remembers was the name of the season two premiere as well. And like, does that really fully fit the entire theme of that episode? Maybe to some degree. That's a
0: thing. That's a thing in Game of Thrones. The North Remembers.
1: Yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, it's like, is it the Nightlands? Because like, everybody's doing the things that happen at night? You know, is that what we're talking about here on, on on episode two of season two? I don't know. But it does seem like a little bit of a reach. I'm not sure what I would have named this instead. But uh fish pie would have even worked <laughs> better. Varys doesn't like fish pie. Uh, maybe that's why that's not the name of this episode.
0: Yeah. And that, again, this is the most mildest of spoilers that the one mention of the Nightlands here, I believe, through seven seasons of Game of Thrones is the only other time Nightlands even comes up, right?
1: Not to my knowledge. Yeah, I can't. It's hard to remember. Like I'm it's sure. not like we're establishing something
0: and it's going to be a thing nightlands
1: Look. yeah we don't we don't know if that's the case we are recording these podcasts with six episodes of game of thrones still to go like the nightlands may be like final boss territory rob you just have no idea mm-hmm. yeah
0: so all right there we go and that's what's going on here in uh this episode so uh some interesting things going on i think that probably uh the most excitement is happening with all of the entry going on in king's landing between Tyrion making moves, uh, obviously we have the moment where Varys has, uh, uh let Tyrion know he knows about Shay,
1: about how she was not supposed to be there. Right. And there's I guess we're hearing what the cover story is for Shay too that Tyrion and Shay met when Tyrion came to Tywin Lannister's camp in the middle of war, but Shay was a cook. She was a cook. She was a cook in the kitchen and they just fell in love. And apparently she makes a very good fish pie, but Varys doesn't like fish.
0: Mhm. <laughs> no. No, he does, but if not. he's
1: not careful, if he's not careful, Tyrion's going to throw him into the sea and then Varys isn't going to have much else to eat. So he may want to develop his palate a little bit further.
0: Mm-hmm. And then we also see Tyrion making a move against Janus Slint uh, following the execution of all of Robert's bastards. And there is a little bit of a mystery over who gave that order. Uh, everything seems to be going well. Uh, with dinner with Jana Slint until he mentions that he might try to uh, hire away the cook that made the dinner. And it seems like uh, that's one of the things Tyrion's like, okay, that's the last straw.
1: That's it. That's the one that <laughs> that's nobody. The one the line. Uh, no, I think that this episode does a great job at establishing the differences between Tyrion Lannister Lannister as Hand of the King, uh, acting Hand of the King, uh, assistant to the Hand of the King, uh, and Ned Stark as Hand of the King. You know, there is even the line that Tyrion says to Varys I'm not Ned Stark. Uh, and I think that that's really supposed to let the audience know that Tyrion is a uh, more politically savvy guy than Ned was. Uh, And he proves that in this scene where he has this dinner with Janos Slint. He's making Janos Slint feel very relaxed and comfortable. The book goes into a little more detail to the fact that both of these guys have been really imbibing in some wine. So Janos is probably his head is swimming at this point. Speaking of going into the ocean and hanging out with the fishes and Tyrion just turns the tables on this guy in what is one of my really favorite scenes uh, of uh, Game of Thrones up to this point. I love when Tyrion turns the tables on Janos Slint And Tyrion is, uh, he's not here for the insults. He is not going to have any of that. When Jano Slint says, uh, are you denying my honor, imp? And Tyrion says, I'm not questioning your honor. I'm denying its existence. And Janos continues and says, do you think that I'll take this from you, dwarf? And it's just a great line read from Peter Dinklage where he goes, dwarf, mm, you should have stopped that imp. Like, I don't know what would have been, you know, changed. Or helped if he had not gone that far, but Tyrion's not going to take insults from anybody. He is, a, he is a powerful man here, and he plans to wield that power. And Janos, who is not only the guy who stabbed that baby at the end of the season two premiere, is also, as we're being reminded here, one of the key traitors that's responsible for the fact that Ned Stark got beheaded, that Ned Stark died. He was in charge of the City Watch, and he turned the gold cloaks against Ned in Ned's final gamble against Joffrey and Sir so uh, this is a nice little moment of, of vengeance that we're earning here, like a little bit of a quiet comeuppance that's happening for Janus Lynn. So I feel great about it. I liked it.
0: And then we also have Braun promoted to the head of the City Watch. And again, there's so many great Tyrion and Braun moments. But when Tyrion asks Braun, so if I asked you to execute a baby, would you do it? No questions asked. He's like, no, I'd ask no. how much.
1: I'd ask how much I'd have a question (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. yes. just lots of great banter between those two characters too and the episode isn't entirely like Tyrion is large and in charge right like it's not just you know him just like dunking on people left and right there's a great scene between between him and Cersei later on that is kind of dealing with the aftermath of this moment um, of Tyrion's decision to, to banish Janos who, who was talking about how I've got friends at court I've got friends at court you know just kicking and screaming on his way out the door and Cersei's like I can't believe that you did this uh, and they're kind of trading barbs back and forth and Tyrion makes a joke about the rumors that Jamie and Cersei are a romantic pairing about how uh, so it's been told that Jamie has fallen repeatedly on you as well uh, yeah. and she then turns the tables on him and talks about how that's a pretty funny joke not quite as funny as the fact that you killed our mother on your way out the door uh, but pretty funny all the same yeah. and that seems to really really get to Tyrion that does not seem to sit well with him
0: yeah well I mean the Tyrion was pushing his luck when Cersei said you know well I once again uh, it falls on me to rule this family like well speaking of falling on you like uh that was, he didn't have to go there that was a little extra
1: yeah I think it was a little extra it was a little extra but that's kind of Tyrion you know Tyrion is uh he's one of the great speakers of Game of Thrones he was feeling uh, it after
0: the Jano slint thing
1: he is definitely, I think, feeling pretty confident in his abilities here. Like he's finally gotten a little bit of, uh, you know, he's been propped up by his father, who he has not always had the easiest relationship with. And he's been entrusted with this job to, to clean up what's going on at King's Landing, because King's Landing is a mess and like they shouldn't even be in this terrible situation, if not for the fact that Cersei couldn't rein in Joffrey. So I think that, you know, with the with the with the whole move to banish Slint to the to the watch, I think that Tyrion is feeling fairly confident confident. And then this is a moment from Cersei that lets you know that at least in terms of like the ability, the capacity to inflict emotional damage upon each other, uh it cuts both ways when it comes to these Lannister siblings.
0: Okay, uh, a lot of stuff uh, going on at Craster's Keep and uh we meet a one of uh Craster's uh daughter wives there, a young woman named Gilly who she and Sam strike up a, uh, a quick connection. Sam is ready to have her leave with the Night's Watch and continue on with their mission because there's something that happens to the male offspring of Craster. He doesn't want to keep them around.
1: Yeah, I guess like the key to unlocking Samuel Tarley's heart is to just call him very brave because he's probably never heard that before, and so now he's feeling really emboldened. But that's the last thing that we see in that conversation between Sam and Gilly uh, that you're very brave, and then the very next thing we see, Sam has already taken Gilly to Jon Snow to be like, "Hey, let's bust her out of here." Uh, but yeah, there is some sort of mystery that is happening with um, with the male children of Craster. Uh, he's he's talked about. The that already in his first appearance how he just keeps you know his daughter wives around and there does not seem to be aside from the men of the Night's Watch and Craster himself any other boys or men that are hanging around Craster's keep and we are seeing some sort of indication of what that's all about where the episode ends with Jon Snow spying on Craster bringing a baby out into the middle of the snowy forest leaving the child in the middle of the snow Jon looks and sees what appears to be some sort of intensely blue eyed figure scooping up the baby and can't investigate any further because he gets knocked out by Craster.
0: I do have to say I was a little bit, you know, weak sauce for the end of the episode that somehow 80 year old Craster got the jump on Jon Snow here in the forest. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, it's just laying track for the fact that Jon Snow's kryptonite is just old men, you know. Right? Yeah, I it's just, so. Like, I know you, you from- want
0: to end the episode on like an exciting moment, but this seemed a little bit forced. Uh, Josh, in the books, does Craster you know sneak up behind Jon Snow and club him over the head?
1: I don't want to say yes or no, because it's been a minute since I've read A Clash of Kings. Uh, I don't recall this, but <laughs> I don't that know. Canon? I don't know. I don't know. Somebody who has a, has a fresher memory of the books, please let us know. Please pipe in.
0: Okay. Uh, we also see Theon on the mission that Rob uh, authorized from last week's episode, where Theon is going to be returning to the Iron Islands. Uh, we are treated to Theon having uh, a... Uh, A go with uh, an aspiring salt wife, and then we see Theon be greeted by a woman uh, at the pier to take him to Pike. And then uh, he finds out, lo and behold, it's his sister, who actually is now the person who is commanding the Greyjoy fleet.
1: Right. We're getting to learn a little bit about where Theon Greyjoy comes from, at least by birth. We also know at this point that long ago there was a conflict between the Iron Islands and the majority of Westeros, and that rebellion was pacified, at least in part, by the Stark forces. And Theon was taken as a, quote unquote, hostage as a result of keeping the peace. And we know, of course, that Theon was treated very well in Winterfell as far as those things go, that he was really raised alongside. The Stark children and I don't know if Ned and Catelyn ever viewed Theon quite as one of their own, but they at least treated him fairly well, given the fact that he was a glorified prisoner. Um, so Theon has a little bit of a you know some identity issues yeah. where he has been raised alongside these Starks. Now he's coming back to the Iron Islander, uh, the Iron Islands, thinking that he is you know he is the heir uh, by rights. He is the male heir of, uh, of to be the Lord of Pike is the is the capital of the Iron Islands. But when he shows up. He he's really not in tune with the culture of the Iron Islands at all. They talk about the gold price versus the iron price and the iron price. If you were not able to divine is you get what you take, you know, you get what you're able to, 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 you know, you get to keep what you were able to earn from battle and from overpowering people. And so when Theon is rolling up with like his majestic cloak and his golden ornaments, nobody's impressed. This is not the look of an Iron Islander.
0: I love when Theon is on the ship and he's talking about like, well, you know, it's a really big day for them. They haven't had a lot to look forward to these last couple of years, but now I'm coming back. And so this is like a really huge moment for the Iron Islands and it's just so it's
1: hilarious. It is. It's it's good, but I, I feel so bad for the for the poor woman yeah. on uh on the boat with Theon. It's terrible. Uh that that you know, is something that deal? I do she 's just traveling along with Theon, and I think that she has this aspiring dream that she is going to be the salt wife of the Lord like the future lord of the iron islands uh, and Theon is just using her and it 's really really brutal it's really brutal and I think that there is that moment when uh, you you see that look of realization dawn on her face when she realizes no i 'm just truly being used uh, and she 's talking about how you know her her father is not going to you know approve of any of this and he's just very dismissive and abusive Towards this this young woman So I mean I think we've been tracking The fact that Theon Greyjoy Doesn't seem to be like The nicest guy on Game of Thrones Seems to be uh, You know not the king of the castle When it comes to like The little shits of Game of Thrones Because there's a lot of them You know a lot of different Bratty characters uh, R.I.P. Viserys Targaryen for instance uh, Joffrey Baratheon is the, is the King of that mountain for sure But Theon Greyjoy is kind of a scumbag And this scene really illustrates that. And everything that's happening with him and his sister, it's not much better, you know, the way that he is treating her when he thinks that she is just someone to be used um, and doesn't realize that, A, she's his sister, which is, you know, its own uh, you know, you know its its own door of horrors uh, that he is unleashing into his world, uh, but also that she is highly respected clearly here within the Iron Islands. So Theon expected a lot as he came home for the first time in forever, and so far it's just not seem seems to be working out the way he expected. Yeah.
0: We also see uh, a lot of stuff going on with Stannis and his forces. Uh we see a lot of interplay between Davos and his son and we definitely didn't get this in the first episode, but uh Davos's son is uh really uh buying all in on the Lord of Light.
1: He's buying the Lord of Light Kool Aid. He is really he's really into that Melisandre. I think is what they call it. Uh, where yeah, he seems to you know this seems to be this new religion that has washed over Dragonstone. Is the impression that we're getting from you know the scenes that we are seeing here that Melisandre showed up and this is not one of the the predominant religions in Westeros. You hear about the old gods occasionally, and it's really the new gods. It's the Seven uh, that you hear about the most, and Melisandre is coming here speaking about a lord of light you know the lord of light there is one true god uh and a lot of people around here including davos's son seem to take that to heart davos himself worships another he (laughs) He worships worships Stannis. (laughs) he worships stannis he is a stannis fanus for sure he's a stannis stan yeah, he's standing Stannis Baratheon. Yeah, and he talks a little bit about why uh you know we are, you know we see this scene where Davos is coming to Salador San. Uh this, you know, pirate who has designs on uh what he would like to get out of the bargain if he is to lend his ships to the to the Stannis Baratheon campaign. We do not need to rehash exactly what his top priority is if you would if you would be so kind as to skip that detail. Mm-hmm. Uh but I think that we do hear from from this exchange that Davos Is able to speak this guy's language because Davos, who is, uh, Stannis Baratheon's right hand man, his consigliere in a lot of ways, um, was not always this way. He was not always uh, the Onion Knight, as they call him. He talks about how he used to be a smuggler and he uh, was very helpful in a campaign of Stannis's long ago during the days of Robert's Rebellion. And Stannis, uh, you know, enacted a little bit of a uh, what we would deem like a a, certainly. a punishment. He loses a little bit of himself in, in service of Stannis. But overall, Stannis has given Davos so much and has uh, helped Davos to, to rise up in his life. So Davos feels like he owes Stannis absolutely everything. Um, so we're getting a little bit more insight into this new character who seems like he at least feels like he's operating under a pretty strong moral compass. Whether or not that's pointing in your true north uh, remains to be seen. Okay. And then...
0: We see Stannis with Melisandra and uh, they talk about something that they need to do to be able to get the—is uh, it the Lord of Light? Is this—is this what they need? That uh, I'm not... again. She's seen victory in the flames, and that uh, she needs a donation from Stannis. She needs yeah. something of
1: him. Yeah. Yeah. And this is partly where the disinfectant, uh, <laughs> the, the disinfectant comes in. Uh, yeah. So they're uh, they're going to do it. Uh, that's going to happen. That is the way that we leave the Stannis and Melisandra storyline. Seems like this is the first time that's happened. Stannis seems to be like, I'm married. This is no good. And Melisandra is like, Nah, it's OK. You know, she's you know giving you nothing but death. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you a son. Uh, so is she talking about an heir to the Iron Throne? Should Stannis win the a war uh, that's a possibility could it be something else that's a possibility too uh, i think we'll just have to we'll have to tune in and, and wait and see what happens mm-hmm.
0: and then also we had some more of danny out in the red waste, and unfortunately uh, she, she sent some riders off last week and then uh, one of those riders came back uh with his head in a saddlebag uh and unfortunately uh that he was not uh, murdered in a way or at least the body was not disposed of in a way that would have sent this rider off to the nightlands to ride yeah, with you, his ancestors
1: yeah you need to burn the body and uh one of Danny's handmaidens is really distraught about this because his body has not been burned he's just been butchered so he can't ride with his ancestors in the nightlands and like Danny reassures her and says you know we'll burn we'll set up a funeral pyre we'll burn him he'll he'll go to his ancestors tonight And we don't even see that in an episode called the Nightlands. Like this is this is genuinely the only moment where the Nightlands are referenced. And it's just this one scene in the red waste. And that's the entirety of the Daenerys Targaryen storyline in this episode. Mm -hmm. Do better. Do better, Game of Thrones. (laughs)
0: Okay. Uh, Anything else? Actually, Arya and Gendry, uh, we see them at the start of the episode where uh, we do have this uh, really great scene where the gold cloaks come looking for Gendry. Arya is assuming they're looking for her. Uh, They're actually looking for Gendry. And we get to see Yorin end up uh, pull a dagger on a guy, a very sharp dagger, and says uh, basically that he's going to uh, nick an artery
1: in his thigh, which is going to be very difficult to unnick. It's going to be hard to unnick that. Yeah. Uh, so he's always he's talking about everyone's always worried about what's upstairs. Nobody's thinking about what's downstairs. Uh, you're not an HBO subscriber. Uh, he is, He has not been watching Game of Thrones. Uh, but yeah, so that's great. And, and Arya obviously is going to confide her secret in Gendry because Gendry is going to have put together at this point that maybe Hot Pie and Lamy Greenhands haven't figured this out. But I know you're not a boy. I know you're a girl uh, and she's going to confess it. She's Arya Stark, uh, and there's a lot of really fun milady happening. You know the, you know like oh I should I should be I, I've been peeing in front of you, uh, and the, it's just like that that was very unladylike, and then she pushes him, and it's just very very funny. Um, but beyond that, I think it's it's fascinating based on what we know about Gendry as well. That what we're watching here, unbeknownst to the two of them, is we're watching the the children of these legendary best friends interacting and being on an adventure together, uh, Gendry being the secret son of Robert Baratheon and Arya, of course, being Ned Stark's daughter. Uh, so that's just a really fun dynamic, especially with both of those men now gone from the show and both of them dead. Uh, it's, it's really great to see these two characters interacting.
0: Okay. Anything else you want to touch on before we get into the spoiler stuff?
1: No, let's go to the spoiler section.
0: Okay, here we go. Uh, we're bringing you the spoilers. Here they come. I, that's also wow. the sound that uh, a person makes after they die, I believe. It. <laughs> right before they head to the Nightlands. That's yeah, the sound I, that comes out of people.
1: I think that that's correct. That's I what Gren that's told right. me. Oh, my God. Yeah. Gren has a lot of. <laughs> have we even really talked about Gren on this podcast? I don't Forget feel Forget like Gren.
0: We... You want to talk about that milkmaid violet?
1: <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> we'll talk about not. what's going on in Lice. No, let's not talk about Lysa. Uh, not even Lysa Aaron, But we could talk about we could talk about the man who uh, who kills Lysa Aaron. We could talk about Littlefinger right now. I think is uh, is a fair person to talk about. There is, you know, we already you know joked before about how this is a very sexual episode of Game of Thrones, and there is this scene that takes place in Littlefinger's brothel between Littlefinger and Roz. and I I think that there is an, uh, a compelling line here. From Littlefinger, given what we know about how this character winds up, given that we know uh, that Littlefinger is ultimately going to be killed by Arya Stark, but on instructions from Sansa Stark, uh, where Littlefinger talks about the return on investment. Uh, and he says, like, I, you know, I, I definitely am always looking to make sure my losses are mitigated. Uh, I hate bad investments. I really do. They haunt me. Um, I think it's kind of. Uh, it's some it, there's some poetic irony in the fact that Littlefinger is going to end up investing so much in Sansa Stark that's going to end point. up being a, a pretty bad investment for Littlefinger down the line. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, really a uh, good
0: payoff to that stuff, because otherwise it's a, it's all a long story for Roz. It's
1: a very long story for Roz. It
0: is. It is. It's
1: not it's not,
0: the, <laughs> it's I mean, not the, You know what I also I didn't get like uh we saw at the end of the episode the Gold Cloaks came in and, you know, uh, ended up like uh completely raiding the joint and then murdering the baby of one of the women that works for Littlefinger and Roz is crying and he's like, Oh, what's going on? Did that guy hurt you? She's like, no, no, uh, it's Megan. And Littlefinger's like, who? Wait, what? What happened? Megan? Right. Like, unless he's like playing it up, it seems like that Littlefinger would have been a little bit shook about what happened with the gold cloaks. And you would think that he would at least know the name of the woman that worked for him who had a baby there. Kind of a turnoff. I don't know about what kind of establishment that Littlefinger is running, also having like a crying baby in the brothel. That being said uh, that you would think he would know the name of the woman that uh, the gold cloaks uh, came in and then uh, killed her baby in the brothel.
1: Or maybe not. Or maybe like this is the you know, this is further, uh, you know, a further advancement of the idea that we need to now come to grips with that Littlefinger wasn't as great as Littlefinger thought he was. Like, he can't even remember a name of his own employee who lost a child. Or the Or maybe going back to the thing about the baby in the brothel,
0: that Littlefinger was like had been like looking for a way to get the baby out of the brothel for a long time. And then uh, he was secretly relieved when that happened.
1: I think that there's no question that Littlefinger is a terrible person. He still uh, works. <laughs> you know, he's a terrible, terrible human being. But I think also something that we need to re- you know start reconciling is that Littlefinger is not the master, master, mastermind that he thinks that he is. Uh, so I think that that you know it's a, it's a subtle thing. Uh, I think that you could wrap it up in the case that we're building against Littlefinger across these podcasts here. Um, this story that he tells Roz as well. Not that we're like talking about. Like end game stuff with the whole show because Roz is long gone by the time that we 're through six uh, seven seasons of game of Thrones um, but I, I do think it is it is sadly uh, kind of prophetic to to where Roz is going to end up as well, where he 's talking Littlefinger is talking about uh, this you know one of his employees who is just like monstrously transformed by a very, very wealthy man. And his losses were mitigated, even if uh, the employee was not successfully made happy. Um, Roz is ultimately going to get, you know, pretty much the same treatment. I mean, she's going to end up being, um, you know, rented out to Joffrey. uh, And Joffrey is uh, going to like, I don't think that we even see the scene. I think we just see the body when we finally see the aftermath. He had like three crossbow bolts in her or something terrible like that. So uh, lots of little I don't know if it's intentional foreshadowing that's happening here at the time of the writing. I would guess not. Uh, but in retrospect, you know, a little bit of irony that you can define from this scene, which okay. is a terrible scene. Otherwise,
0: <laughs> the big thing that I want to talk about in the spoilers is so this scene where John is watching the baby get dropped off by Craster. We don't know what happens to the baby. We see like a shadowy figure end up picking up the baby. And then that's really all that we get on this until we get to season four. Uh, At the time, Josh, did was it assumed that that was, in fact, a White Walker?
1: I think so, yeah. And I, I, this has been something that has always been theorized about, like what's the deal with Craster's children? About uh, you know what's going on with the with the the infant boys that he sacrifices seemingly uh, and just like brings out into the into the wild. And I don't think that the books yet have confirmed that they are being scooped up by White Walkers. But just a little bit of post show recaps history for for those who don't remember or those who are just joining us. Uh, when we find out in I think. I think it's season four. It's an episode called Oath Breaker, I believe, uh, where we find a White Walker scoop up one of Craster's kids and take him back to the Night King's lair. And we see the Night King for the very first time that that was like a total mind blowing moment for even people who had read the books where this was one of the first occasions where Game of Thrones Game of Thrones really delivered a piece of information that seemed to be a massive bombshell that George R.R. R. Martin himself had not yet dropped. And it was the birth of the tragically no longer with us Game of Thrones book club podcasts that we did between myself and Terry Schwartz, which were some of the most amazing podcasts that we ever got to do. And unfortunately, Terry and I have just both been so busy that we haven't been able to do them anymore. Um, But this is uh, the start of that story uh, where you're getting the sense that the White Walkers are taking Craster's kids for reasons that we don't exactly understand at this point in time. And I don't think that we even still to date fully understand what's going on except that they are converting them into whether they're like baby white walkers or just like little infant zombies i'm not entirely sure what like the long goal is of that uh but it's cool to see it's cool to see the building blocks here for that it's a shame that it does end in this very cheesy way with craster just knocking john out
0: okay so the night king comes he takes babies and then They convert them into White Walkers based on what we saw in that season four episode. Are they White Walker babies? Are there White Walker younglings around? Is there like some sort of like White Walker (laughs) preschool that goes on like they're like or do they sort of like become do they grow very fast?
1: What's going on there? Yeah, I don't know if there's like a the White Walker daycare center. I would like to see that. I think that that would be fun. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe we'll see in the final season. Maybe we'll get some more insight into that. And maybe, I don't know, a zombie Hodor is uh, is taking care of all the little White Walker kids. That could be fun. Mm-hmm. That could be great. Sure. Let's stick on the subject of White Walkers for another couple of minutes, at least. I, I was really heartened with a scene that we got in this episode that, frankly, I had completely forgotten about. Um, and it's the it's the scene where after Tyrion and Varys have had their first scene, which I think would be fun to revisit as well. Uh, they go to a small council meeting where they hear about what's happening at the Night's Watch. Uh, And they hear Lord Commander Mormont's um, letter about the dead are rising, cold winds are rising, and so are the dead. Uh, And Tyrion who did not believe in Grumkins and Snarks, uh, but did go to the wall and met Lord Commander Mormont and met a few other people. Tyrion does believe in people. And that's going to be something that's going to come to bear in season seven when he starts catching wind of Jon Snow wanting to, to meet with Daenerys and Jon Snow coming with these words of warning about what's happening north of the wall. And, I guess I had completely forgotten that there was some, you know, there was some track that was laid for this where here in season two, Tyrion's not really going to busy himself with this too much. Uh, But the fact that he is even unsettled at all by the fact that Lord Commander Mormont, somebody he trusts, somebody who he does not believe to be a crazy fool or anything like that, is going to be so concerned about this seemingly supernatural menace that is brimming north of the wall. uh, That was really cool to see that there's, you know, the seeds were planted all the way back then yeah uh,
0: i love also the first encounter with Tyrion and varus in the episode so as great. Well, it's awesome. because we know where this relationship is ultimately going we know that uh they will ultimately become close
1: friends but here i think that they are still feeling each other out Yeah, I think they are as well. Uh, I like Tyrion's threat of, you know, I'll have you thrown into the sea after making like his... uh, There's a lot of great wordplay going on where he says earlier, we'll make a fisherman of him yet, uh, and then says, threaten me again and I'll have you thrown into the sea. And this is a great line from Varys. You might be disappointed in the results. Storms come and go, big fish eat the little fish, and I keep on paddling. Uh, Yeah, I think that that's great. Maybe that uh, helped to build the theories that... uh, that Varys is, uh, you know, getting from place to place so yes. quickly because he's just an expert rower. Uh, he's just so good in the water. Uh, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe he's got webbed toes. You know, that could be. I, isn't
0: that, that a theory that, that people have talked about that Varys is like some sort of a merman?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Varys is a merman. Theories are, are crazy and they are out there. That's and where it not- starts here. We're <laughs> we're not- <laughs> I just keep paddling. Yeah, I don't think we're going to entertain that, but uh, I do like that. I think it's funny, uh, but it's great to see them in, in this capacity where they are just kind of sizing each other up and, and feeling each other out. And we talked about this a lot in our season one podcasts about uh, how Barris often does just like in those scenes with Ned Stark really lay it out pretty plainly and pretty accurately of like I serve the realm and like I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not as bad as you might think I am. And we just in that first watch, we don't know whether or not to trust Varys, we've come around to really believing in Tyrion Lannister because we've been so embedded in his perspective on things. That I think when Tyrion and Varys are matching wits, you're going to automatically side with Tyrion. But it's you know it's it's definitely Varys is authentically when he says like I'm not threatening you, like this isn't a threat. I'm kind of just like sniffing out what's going on over here. Uh, like I feel like that's authentic. I think that's legitimate. So I like these early scenes with Varys, and of course. Uh, I, I cannot tell you how much I love that scene with Jano Slint, especially knowing what Tyrion has sent this man off to. Uh sending him to Eastwatch, first of all, so you know Drink every time you hear East Watch, considering that's going to be a very important location in season seven. But also we know that this man is not going to survive his stay at the watch. He is going to be beheaded, uh, by Jon Snow. And that's going to be the final point of vengeance for, for Ned Stark in terms of Janice's involvement in that. So. And not before cowering, uh, in like the closet with Gilly. Yes, that's great. Also, Gilly, Gilly, Gilly is all over this episode. I Mm -hmm. guess I'd kind of forgotten that like Gilly was such a mainstay on Game of Thrones as early as like these first two episodes of season two. Yeah, Uh, Gilly
0: that uh, really it's love at first sight between her and Sam, Uh, the OTP,
1: Sam and Gilly. (laughs) Yeah, the OTP of Game of Thrones for sure, uh, which makes me nervous. You know, we are again, we are recording this podcast without having seen the final six episodes of Game of Thrones, which are currently in production as we're recording this. Uh, but the way that season seven ended was with the wall partly coming down and White Walkers and their army of the dead finally infiltrating Westeros. And we've talked about the fact that. Winterfell is dang close to where they made landfall, and Sam and Gilly are among the people who are currently in Winterfell. And I am nervous for anybody who is in Winterfell right now. And I got to imagine there has to be at least a major casualty or two. Uh, and I would be very, very worried about both Sam and Gilly in the coming um, assault of the White Walkers. And I and I think that there could be, uh, there could be some sort of horrible, cruel irony to the fact that Sam rescued gilly from being north of the wall and brought her south of the wall but even that wasn't enough to save her from the coming doom that was brimming north of the wall so i'm very nervous like heading into the final season of game of thrones if we were to do like a really massive kind of death draft of like you could have like 10 people per side uh, i would be eyeing gilly fairly early on in the draft
0: wow you really feel like gilly is in danger i feel like that they wouldn't do that
1: I think that it's, it's so, it's so brutal and I think it would make such a declarative, uh, statement pretty early on. I think that, you know, Sansa and Arya and Bran are two, are are three of the other characters that are in Winterfell right now. I think it's hard to imagine losing any one of those three very quickly, but of the people who are currently in Winterfell that we could lose, yeah, like I feel like I feel like we could lose Gilly, and that would be like really heartbreaking and awful. And I think add some um, some further menace to the White Walkers' efforts. Like I think that they've got to kill some of our our beloveds uh, in order to really establish their danger. Uh, and I think to to have that happen to a real innocent like Gilly is something that I could see Game of Thrones doing, especially as we're revisiting these early episodes of the show. When I think Game of Thrones uh, was definitely more toothsome in. That. That category in terms of its willingness to really kill characters off. I mean, Rob, we're coming hot off the heels of last week's premiere of the season two premiere, where they murdered a baby on screen. Right, but it and was just know, like a red shirt baby. It was just a, just <laughs> a red shirt baby, it's <laughs> a one of the red blanket baby. You've ever said,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But but I I think that, you know, if Game of Thrones wants to close out with not just scale and scope, they really need to break some hearts. And I think that Gilly losing Gilly would be a heartbreaker. Um, So I don't know. I I would love to be wrong. I would be thrilled to be wrong. But I'm Mm -hmm. nervous is what I'm saying. I'm very worried for Gilly.
0: Yeah, I just don't know what Sam's story would be ultimately after. Like I could almost see more the Sam dying in some brave way to protect Gilly and baby Sam unless it was going to be that Sam raises baby Sam in some way. But uh, the, to me, I feel like that if you kill Gilly, I kind of feel like that you take away the sort
1: of motivation for Sam. Or now it's vengeance. And now it's like Sam the Slayer stage two, you know, like it could be like a real reactivation of of Sam just being like, a I don't know, you like turn him into John Wick, you know, John Bradley Wick. And then Sam takes out the Night King because he killed Gilly. Yeah, that's right. He takes them all out. Uh, Theon Greyjoy was also in uh, John Wick. Oh, did you know that? Have you not seen John Wick? No, you got to do it. You got to check out John Wick. Everyone's got to check out John Wick.
0: Um, Well, talking about Theon, uh, we saw Balon Greyjoy also here in this episode. And uh, Theon came in with like, hey, I've got this great plan. You're going to be the king of the Iron Islands. What do you think about that? And he was like, pass. (laughs) Not feeling it. Right, right. So he has his own plan. What are we going to see the uh, Greyjoy fleet go on to do? They're
1: going to go move in to Moat Kalen. Yeah, they're going to start attacking the north. Uh so like Theon has come here to make uh, an alliance with the people that he thinks that he can control because he is from the Iron Islands and he's, you know, coming here and he's thinking that they're going to be rolling out the iron carpet for him. Uh and that is not the case at all. Instead, it's like everybody's forgotten him and no one's impressed by him, and he's going to take that really personally because, as we've established so far, Theon is a jerk up to this point in his life, and is very arrogant and feels he's owed things that he's really not owed. Um, and is also traumatized by his experiences that you know he was uh, you know taken as a young kid and like thrust into this totally different situation. But the show has done a really good job up to this point of just like showing that he's a pretty cruel person. He's a pretty thoughtless person. He's a really selfish person. He's a bad guy. Uh, and that's going to be the thing that galvanizes him to take over Winterfell and once again bite off a lot more than he can chew. And it's going to go so poorly for him. So I think that the, you know, I, it, it was really rough to watch some of these scenes with Theon in this episode and just to remember just how awful he is. And my memory, Of the first Theon chapter uh, Of A Clash of Kings Uh, This is like It's not like completely You know Beat for beat Accurate to how it plays out in the book, but like the thing with like the the hopeful salt wife, that's fairly close to my memory of it. That they really uh, paint a picture of her as somebody who is really just being like you know really you know like unwittingly abused by Theon, uh, and then even everything like to like you know some of like the the shadier details of what's going on between Theon and Yara. Uh, that's that's fairly accurate as well. And I think that like for the Theon stuff, if it lands with you at all, and I know it doesn't land with everybody like the later stuff, like the reek of it all and him going through the Ramsey Bolton torture experience uh, for all of that to really land with such impact. I think that it, it it's effective to paint a picture of this guy as a pretty pathetic piece of crap. You know, somebody who just like really treats people poorly because he thinks that he is the rightful Lord. Uh, and I think that it, it's, it's like a real, you know, it's a total pendulum swing that you're going to get later on, but it's difficult to watch right now. Uh, all of that stuff, the, The Theon arc is is a is a fascinating one to track for me. Not as fascinating for everybody else, but I really love it in the book, especially. And Alfie Allen does such a great job at acting like a douche.
0: Yeah, I'd say it's going to be a interesting journey to track. And and I think there's a lot of foreshadowing and ultimately uh, the fate of Yara is still to be determined. And uh, we see her origin here in this episode. So there is uh, a lot to track.
1: There's a lot to track. There's a lot to track indeed. Uh, what else should we be tracking here? Uh, anything from uh, from Arya in the King's Road? I mean, we are meeting like a few characters in this episode that are going to be, if not quite mainstays of Game of Thrones, and certainly memorable uh, and enduring characters for much of Game of Thrones. Like there's a very quick flash in the pan, Podrick Payne, uh, during that scene with Tyrion and Janos Slint. That's the first Podrick Payne sighting. And then, of course, here comes Jack and Hagar. Unless you're arguing that that's not Jack and Hagar's first appearance, and he was playing every single character in season one of Game of Thrones already.
0: Yeah, well, of course, uh, yeah. Jack and Hagar really gets to speak for the first time. We sort of like saw him uh, staring at Arya. He seems to know a lot about Arya already at this point. So, how do we
1: explain this? Yeah, well, it makes you wonder how much of the Arya Stark stuff is like she, you know, I don't want to say she lucks into going to Bravos because none of this feels lucky for her. Uh, Or is it, you know, predestined? Is she being scouted? Is she being eyed? Um, Does Jack and Hagar know who Arya is already because Jack and Hagar, having been in King's Landing for other business, may have had eyes on Arya. Aria somehow uh the argument for Syrio Pharrell truthers would be that he's Syrio Pharrell. so of course that's how he knows who Arya is I think an easier way would be that he's been you know he's been circumnavigating the you know the tunnels of King's Landing and doing whatever faceless man shenanigans he's been up to in King's Landing and therefore through his spying on people that we are going to see members of the House of Black and White do in later seasons of Game of Thrones has seen Arya before and knows who she is uh uh, so I think I don't know. I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to have Jack and Hagar back on the show because yeah. we haven't we haven't seen him in a while. Uh and he's a he's a great character. This is a really really fun character to have on the show.
0: But could we just talk this through for a minute? I mean, are we really believing that Jack and Hagar was apprehended by somebody and now is being locked away for him like he had to have wanted to be caught. There's no way that Jack and Hagar if he needed to, I mean, I know we set it up that Aria frees him and, and, and Aria, you know, owes him a solid. But really we, that he allowed himself to be apprehended sort of like the greatest assassin in the known world that is tapped into all of these uh, different powers and the faceless men that he couldn't have escaped the clutches of being shipped to the wall if he wanted to.
1: Yeah, I think that it's entirely likely that there is some ulterior purpose, like there's some alternate mission that Jack and Hagar is on that we're not aware of, that he really is keeping an eye on Arya, that he sees some potential in her. I think that there's every reason to believe that that's a possibility. Uh, but I also think it's, you know, worth keeping in mind that it's not like, it's not like the faceless men are Impervious to, to being caught and Killed uh, we you know We know the waif is going to get Demolished by Arya In just a few seasons from now Arya Herself is going to catch a couple Of uh, stab wounds to the abdomen uh, Which is not going to be great So I think that there's you know There's there's reasons to believe That uh, that the faceless men are not Quite as invincible as maybe we're Giving them credit for even though they are Fantastic assassins but I think That there's also an argument to be made that Jack and Hagar is a man on a mission himself, and he's got something else going on in the in the book. What's going on with Jack and Hagar actually has more to do with Samwell's storyline and everything that's going on in the Citadel. The show never bared that out, but maybe at this point in the construction of the show, they were still planning on going that way. Instead, they have Jack and Hagar show back up in Bravos in season five. Okay. Uh, could you just uh, talk that through real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, so everything that's going on with Sam, he like shows up at the Citadel, and you actually see the start of it in uh, at the end of season two in Jacken's last scene, where he's going to do that like face wipe, and he's going to have like kind of like this black hair and this hook nose and everything. Uh, and that same version of the character is going to show back up at the Citadel in, I believe it's the fourth book of the series, uh, is going to to kill the prologue character and then show up at the very end in Sam's chapter taking on the face of the prologue character that he killed unknown to anybody else has infiltrated the culture of the Citadel and we don't know exactly why yet because George R. R. Martin doesn't want to release any more of his books or Mm -hmm. for whatever reason they just haven't come out yet Uh, but there's like heavy speculation that he might be involved in like stealing some um, potentially like magical artifacts there's dragon candles that perhaps he's going to yank maybe a book or two. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Hunapu. So, we're still waiting to see what's going on with Jack and Hagar in the books, but it's a different path than what is being forged on the show.
0: Yeah. That being said, in terms of just to talk through the Syrio Forel theory for just a second, I don't know how he would necessarily that we last saw Syrio that he was, you know, uh, in the, uh, you know, uh, inside of uh, the Red Keep, and then I don't know how he would necessarily... You know, know that Arya had been picked up by Yorin and then was going to be headed to the Night's Watch and then end up getting into a cell to be transported. So I kind of feel like that while it seems to me like that maybe there's some sort of a destiny there for Aria and that uh, Jack and Hagar had been scouting her in some way, I don't know necessarily how he knew that she was going to be with Yorin, whether he's Syria or not.
1: He's not Sirio Pharrell. That's the answer. It's okay. not happening. It's not But I am buying that he somehow knew that there was you know a
0: reason that he needed to be there.
1: I can buy that. I can I can I can be convinced. Um, couple of other things maybe to hit as we're on our way out of this episode uh speaking of Purell they really want to wipe down the uh the war room table at Dragonstone right you know considering oh that's what that's, I was talking about yeah yeah that's gonna be like a very important location in the future that's something that they want to think about cleaning that. up I don't know I don't know uh maybe maybe they had uh Drogon like breathe some fire just over it just to, like burn off all the germs mm-hmm. would be nice uh Alador San. Remember when we were talking yeah. about him last week? One of this his, his th- appearances. One of his three episodes, uh, according to the Game of Thrones Wikipedia. So we'll have to What happened? that. He didn't test well with the uh, I'm going to uh, hook yeah. up with Cersei. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for classing that up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, don't they talk about how, like, I don't know, like, you can either spend your last few years on the, seal, on the sea stealing from Pentoshi cheesemongers and Metanese silk merchants, or you could fight the good fight here with Stannis and maybe after like the Battle of Blackwater, he's just like, "Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go steal from Pentoshi cheese mongers. That sounds good. That sounds like a life for me." Uh, so that's probably where Salador Sand is. Maybe Euron Greyjoy is going to show up with Salador Sand in hand in uh, season eight. Okay, all right. So anything else you want to touch on
0: uh, from anything else in the Nightlands?
1: Anything else in the Nightlands? No, I mean, the death of Ricaro is yet another instance of we're just kind of, uh, you know, things are things are I don't know. Things are moving slowly in the Daenerys storyline. Things are moving a little bit differently in the Daenerys storyline. Things are moving a little bit poorly in the Daenerys storyline. So uh, that is happening. All of that is real. Uh I did like that she's talking about how, like, she'll, uh, you know, one of the one of these calls killed Ricaro and they don't like the idea of a woman leading the Kolisar. Uh Nice to know that Daenerys will be able to get one over on those guys eventually. Yeah. That and makes, that makes me happy. It
0: does, in my mind, uh, add a little bit to the scene where she murders all of the calls right. that are out there. It's like, yes. uh, you know, like, what did those guys do? Like, well, they did, uh, you know, who knows uh, which call did it? But somebody cut off the head of one of her riders
1: yeah, yeah 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 so one of those guys got their comeuppance for sure yeah
0: okay josh uh so great stuff here what can you tell us about the next outing here for game of
1: thrones all right. Coming up next in uh, season two, "What is Dead May Never Die" is the next episode that we're getting into. Uh, Theon he's going to double down on his Iron Islands loyalties. We're going to see uh, the great one-two-three scene with Tyrion Lannister, where he is going to uh, he's going to try and figure out who is Cersei's most loyal person on the Small Council. Where he's going to be going to Littlefinger and Varys and Grandmaster Maester Pycelle and giving them all. Uh, giving them all different pieces of information. That's a classic. That's a really fun Tyrion scene. Um, We're also going to, I believe we're going to say goodbye to Yoren and Lamy Greenhands. So Uh. very sad. Very, very sad indeed. Yeah. Yoren had a great episode great episode for yorian uh look these northerners they're great characters unless they're the boltons in which case they suck yeah okay josh
0: uh where do you have the nightlands in the episode rankings bottom bottom Bottom. so it has displaced last week's episode as the new worst
1: of the best yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that there's there's higher highs in the season two premiere. Uh, I think that this one, um, I don't know. I'm I'm just not really feeling uh, like all the stuff with with Theon in the Iron Islands, even though I think it's important character building work. It's just it's not fun to watch all of the sex position, as we discussed earlier, really mm-hmm. not. Not my cup of tea. Uh, so I, the, the fact that it's called the Nightlands and there's really no reason for it to be called the Nightlands, uh, all of that stuff. Like, I think that it's just it's the least cohesive Game of Thrones episode we've encountered so far.
0: What's the most memorable or iconic thing from this
1: episode? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the most memorable or iconic thing from this episode, maybe to me, is the uh, the Janna Slint scene. I, I think just for me personally, mm-hmm. probably for more people, it, it would be uh, the sex scene at Dragonstone. I would bet. Oh, okay. Don't you think so? Uh,
0: that uh, look. I think there's a couple of different uh, gross-out scenes or moments that get burned into your uh, brain that are hard to unsee uh, from yeah. the images in this episode. But yeah, that's probably definitely the best scene.
1: So there you go. You know, that's the Nightlands. Okay. You know, you I go. think I, I think this could this could be the bottom for a while. Mm-hmm. Would be my bet.
0: All right. Of course, plenty of other stuff going on on post show recaps. Uh, Mr. Robot is, uh, is getting ready to close up shop here pretty soon for season three.
1: Oh, my God. Yes. Getting very, very close to the end of the road here for season three. Only two more episodes left in season three, which has just been marvelous. Great television, really great stuff. And we've been having a very fun time on that podcast. The Mr. Robot podcast with yours truly and Antonio Mazzaro, also in collaboration with The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, We've got a few fun surprises that we are trying to line up as we are closing the book. As we're closing the book here on uh, on our Mr. Robot podcast. So subscribe to that post recaps.com slash robot. OK, of course, uh, from the night lands to
0: nightfall. That's another show that we have uh, recently recapped on post show recaps as yes. well. Uh, yes. Everything going on with The Walking Dead is it is uh, getting to the halfway point in season eight. So check that out as well. All on postshowrecaps.com. Follow everything that Josh Wigler is doing for uh, the THR on Twitter, at Round Howard. I'm at Rob sister Anything else? Nothing else.
1: That's everything.
0: <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.